Father in heaven, we thank you for the gathering of the saints, that you have radically changed our lives. Once captured in darkness, now captured by the glory of your Son. There's been a radical change. Now we stand wholly before you in our position, and yet there is this desire from the Spirit within our life to pursue holiness. And so, Lord, we know that you've always wanted your people to be holy. You did not want it attached to their salvation that they gained it in some way. But you do want your people to pursue holiness. And so, Lord, as we're reminded of that today, and some general laws and precepts that you laid down for the nation of Israel, may we be encouraged to be holy people who practice holiness, who pursue it. And when we fail, we confess and repent and pursue again. Thank you for your grace in that, Lord. I pray you encourage us today in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The writer of Hebrews says that there is a sanctification that you must have, and without it you will not see the Lord. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 Certainly there, the word hagias, there, especially the root word, we get the word sanctify, sanctification, we get the word holy from that word. This position that we have, that, or that we must have in order to see the Lord, is that God must declare you holy to spend eternity in his presence. And yet... And the Bible is full of verses that teach us to pursue holiness. To pursue a life of holiness. Well, God has not changed. He's an immutable God, right? Immutability means that God doesn't change because he doesn't have to change, right? We need to change because we are desperate need to change, don't we? But he doesn't change. And so we can study the Old Testament with a biblical theology looking forward to the final fulfillment in Christ in the gospel propelling us in this new covenant. And we can look at the Old Testament and realize truths that help us live holy lives, individually and corporately. When we look at our Bibles in Leviticus chapter 19, we find a whole bunch of laws and principles that God is laying down for his nation to help them recognize his holiness and help them be holy so they're not like the world. And so right there, there's great truth for us, isn't there? As we think about this pursuit of holiness. Well, there's a lot of laws and principles in chapter 19. They're almost every verse or every couple of verses. And so we'll do our best to get through some of these tonight. And if we don't, we'll come back next week to finish 19. But it is a challenging passage with, with quite a few different laws and uh, and the way the nation was to conduct themselves. So we'll work through this. Five thoughts we'll attempt to get after tonight. And if we don't, we'll finish it next week. Number one, a national call to holiness by Israel's king. Now let's make sure we know who the king is. The king is God. They're under a complete theocracy here. God is their king. He's their ruling king. They have none other to look at. And so their king, King Yahweh here is calling the nation to holiness. Look at verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the sons of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, 
For I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Well, notice it's Moses uh, getting the lesson from God. Aaron is not included in this because Moses is the mediator between the nation and God. And, and Aaron is centered around the work of the tabernacle. And so it's Moses here that is getting this instruction. Notice right off the bat, we are confronted with this term, holy. It's a term that's used often of God. It means to be separate. And and when it's applied to God, it means he is separate from sin. He is absent from evil. He is completely sinless. And then when we attach ourselves to this, this, this means God is different than mankind. Would you agree with that? He's different than mankind. Though we, as Christians, if we're professing, believing Christians here, we have a holy standing, but we know in of of ourselves that we are not holy people if it were not for God. In fact, we would not love him if he didn't love us. So this means that God's different than mankind and that his holiness is great and it causes us to see his majestic being and who he is it affects all of his attributes so this means his love is not like our love it's holy love his justice is unlike other justice or anyone else's his truth is unlike others his purity is unlike others his mercy and grace and so forth are unlike others because they are never never tainted by sin in any way this gives us great hope as Christians, and, and we think forward. This week I was asked a question about God and sin and, and judgment and so forth, things like that. Think about the justice of God. It is absent of any evil or sin. So, so for us, how to deal with life and injustices in a desperate need of justice, we go to the Word of God to understand God's justice because it's... It's devoid of an evil. Now, everything about him is completely absent of evil, right? And thus setting him apart from all of his fallen creation. And and then we come to another word that's not in our text, but a word that I think we attach to the Lord is the word divine. Now, I've had some cheesecake that I used the word divine a couple of times. (laughs) But it really falls short, doesn't it? God is divine. It speaks of his being and his character as unlike humanity, right? It's divine. And yet, yet God made humans in his image. And he calls us to be holy like his divine holiness. Now, Down through the ages, people have tried to attempt to gain that holiness through their own striving, right? We call this self-righteous. We've looked at some ascetic things in 1 Corinthians. Uh, This is that pious, pharisaical type of behavior, trying to gain what only can be gifted. But yet God calls us to do this. Now, as we look at our text, and in this context... Israel was to be different. They were to be separated. They were to be holy. They were to come out from the nations that surrounded them. That's what God wants for all of his people. 
Remember, he hasn't changed. He wants all of his children to be separate than the lost. Not in a prideful, arrogant way. It's actually very humble when we think about this. So what he did with the nation of Israel is he gave them a sacrificial plan, right? We've been working through that in Exodus and Leviticus. This sacrificial plan allowed them to be righteous and holy in the sight of God and maintain a relationship with him, although temporary, and had to be done year after year, and the blood of both bulls and goats had to suffer much. But he gave them a way to have a right standing with him. But throughout the year, God wanted his nation to live holy lives, so he gave them a means to know they were forgiven and reconciled so that the rest of the time they could choose to obey him. And we have that too, right? Because of my salvation, because of your salvation, there is now the Spirit of God within us, an understanding of the Word of God. All of this drives, if we will not quench the Spirit and believe the Bible, drives us to be like our Father in Heaven. It causes us to want to be that way. Now, there's a call to holiness here to the nation and it means he wants them more like himself and they're to be separate out themselves and 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 they're to separate themselves to god through his truth because you can't you can't make up what you think god should be like and then separate yourself to what you think he should be like you separate yourself according to what he says we should be like that's how religions get started every day right Because they don't like this and they don't like that. So while we separate ourselves from those that are not like him, we begin as we obey his word to resemble him. G. Campbell Morgan, writing on this text, said this. He said, the people created and governed by God are intended to represent him and the truth concerning him to all peoples. And that was God's goal for the nation. He wanted the nation to represent, to to reflect him, to be holy and be a witness to the nations around them. So God represents himself in his glory as holy. His laws are holy. His actions are holy. All this is done out of his justice and goodness. And so this clearly sets him apart from the pagan gods that the world, especially this day and today, uh, held to. The pagan religions that were around Israel had unholy laws and unholy statutes. And they required sinful and shameful living in those standards. So God is going to give a standard that is not shameful, that is not unholy, because it would not reflect him. But the nations around them, as we've seen and we'll see tonight, they had shameful, sinful laws that they obeyed. As they strived to reflect their God. Now, God wanted Israel to be an example. And so he set a pattern for holiness. And that's what we see in these laws. There's a pattern. And they're good laws. They're, they're good. They, they show the difference of a, of a people who is following God versus one that isn't. And so that they could live in separate ways. And you go, when you read the law, you go, wow, it's, uh, it's the standard, Right? But yet we do have men and women throughout the Bible who the Bible, God says, were holy and blameless people, right? We have a whole chapter on them. Hebrews what? 11. 
These people who were committed to a God-given faith and to live according to that, though they were not perfect, they, they repented, they were right with God, and God calls them faithful people. So, so a lot of people say the Old Testament, ah, I hope I can live up to that. Well, some people did. In fact, Job was this... I mean, Satan, have you considered my servant Job? I mean... He empowers us to live. And in the Old Testament, though we did not have the Messiah yet, God made a way for them to be right with him yearly and temporarily so that they could pursue holiness. Now, Israel could experience the joy of this if they would if they just do things God's way. And, and all of this pointed towards the coming Messiah um, that reminds us that we have this great positional holiness. And, I, and I, just for the sake of making sure we put this into a new covenant um, a biblical theology context. Just listen to some of the verses of our, our standing, and then I'll work towards verses that produce a practical holiness. Just listen for the sake of time. Ephesians chapter 1, just as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundations of the world. Now listen to this. That he would be, that we, excuse me, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That is the goal of God's election is to make people holy and blameless before him. Man cannot make himself holy and blameless without God's sovereign hand in this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22, Yet he now reconciled you in his fleshly body. That's Jesus came, was incarnate, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, beat death, raised from the dead. He did this in his fleshly body in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So here, this is our positional stance, isn't it? Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. So as those who have been chosen of God, you see that holiness and the election of God's work is always connected throughout the scriptures. So, so those chosen of God, holy and beloved, now comes the practical. Here we go. I've been chosen of God. I've been positioned holy and beloved. Now the Bible says, put on a heart of compassion. And then he's going to start a whole list here. The result of the great finished work of Jesus Christ that now makes us holy and right in our standing before God also drives a desire to be compassionate for people. To be kind is the next one. To show humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other who has a complaint against you just as the Lord forgave you. 2 Timothy 1.9 it was God who has saved us and called us, here we go, in a holy calling. Not according to our work, so we know this is positional now. According to his own purpose. And grace was granted to us in Jesus Christ. So there's that position. But then Peter comes along. He takes this text, Leviticus chapter 16 and uh, 19, and listen to what he says. As obedient children, 1 Peter 1, 14 and following, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were Yours in ignorance. Now let's stop and think about that. The word ignorance there is not an excuse. Before you had the Spirit of God in you, you knew what was right and wrong. He wrote that on all men's hearts. But you were dead in your sins. There's a, there's a spiritual deadness to us that causes us to be ignorant that there's an almighty God who, who has set down his decrees... And to set down the things that he loves and desires and how to, make, how to bring people to holiness. There, there is a rejection of that in our deadness. 
But then Peter says this, and he's now he's starting to quote this verse. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all of your behavior. Now that's an amazing statement. Be holy in all of your behavior. That's a tough all, isn't it? Anybody bothered by that all? <laughs> As you think about all the things that you do each and every day, all your relationships, all your habits, all the things that cause you anger and frustrations. The Bible says that we are to be holy in all of our behavior. And the reason is because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So, so it comes back to this position we have with the Father that we are capable of living these lives that are holy. Now, because God is holy, we're positional holy, now we have the power, and here's, the, I, here's where I want us to help us understand this. We have the power to do what's right according to God's word, not in some self-righteous, pious way, but because God is glorified and encouraged. God is worshipped by our behavior, and there's an inner desire through the Spirit to do that. And so, like Israel... God wants his people, including the church, his bride, to be holy and separate from this evil world. John said it this way, and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, Jesus, purifies himself. Now, now it's so easy to look at that and say, oh, okay, I, better, I better start living pure. The, the strength of the context, the strength of the syntax of the, this verse teaches us because we have a purified Savior within us, we have all of the ability, first of all, to stand positionally pure and to pursue pure purity. We can do it because of what God has done for us. Now, though we are in the world, we're not of it, we know that. And, and just one more note on this. Um, I, I've been teaching Reformed theology for a long time, and it's just Biblical soteriology is a good term for that. But through the years, I've watched people who have claimed Reformed theology stop pursuing holiness. That's a shame, isn't it? A laziness of, well, I didn't do anything to gain it. God knew me before the foundations of the world. And there's a lack sometimes in some reform circles of this pursuit. And I think this pendulum swings many ways. It swings from a laziness over here, well, I'm in, to a self-righteous legalism. Legalism that can come. I think reformed theology, people who believe the doctrines of grace and believe the truth of the scriptures should, should strive as hard as anyone out of a worshipful desire to please God. Because God has helped us understand the deep love he has for us, the deep position we had before of death and deadness and, and uh, no desire for the things of God, and he has awakened us to that. And it wasn't by our own choice. Second thought tonight, God gives laws that encourage the pursuit of practical holiness. These verses, those first two, I wanted to spend some time on them because they're, they're, they're spoke of in the New Testament. And being holy is often misrepresented. I remember as a young man, I started to desire to walk with the Lord, and my friends started calling me a holy roller. And I was kind of embarrassed of that. But later, I began, I think that was more of a compliment. They didn't see it that way. 
But now God gives laws to encourage the pursuit of practical holiness to the nation. Verses 3 through 8. We'll start to see and look at some of these individual ones. Verse 3. Every one of you should, shall re, uh, reverence his mother and his father. And you shall keep my Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Now right out of the bat we see the fifth command being repeated here. Right? And you're going to see several of the commands repeated through these laws. And again, I think this is a window into the pagan world. Remember, he's saying, be holy because God's holy. Come out, be separated from this world. So right now, he starts to talk about the way children react to their parents. Now, this is a window into the pagan world, isn't it? Um, I, I did some research on the parenting of, of those in the Philistines and Canaanites and so forth, and it was ugly because... What I could understand is, first of all, the kids were always scared because they might get sacrificed. And if you had some kind of problem, you were a goner. And then there was a constant fear of your God. Not, not an awe, a fear. And you created fear within the home. And so everybody lived in fear that the gods weren't happy. And so there was just terrible parenting that would have come with that practice. However, for Israel, holiness was to be practiced and has become really a central building block for the stability and health of the society, and it started in the home. You know, a younger generation that does not honor the older generation would certainly be less than holy, right? In fact, it would destroy the foundation that God was building. I think one of the most disturbing Many disturbing verses in the Bible. Well, there's one where the next generation didn't, that one generation did not pass the worship of God onto the next as they rolled at the end of Joshua into Judges. And, and, and you work into Judges and you have this great book on Joshua and it's victory and victories and amazing things that are going on. There's some rebellion, there's some problems, but most of it is God just taking the nation and going through the land of Canaan. You get the judges, and all of a sudden, this next generation does not know the God of their parents. And there's rebellion after rebellion, and then there's, there's discipline that comes, and, and there's all kinds of problems there, isn't there? Now, notice in verse 3 that mothers come, <coughs> excuse me, that mothers come first here. <coughs> excuse me. Certainly, this is because of this God-given role of nurturing. But women in the pagan world were just possessions. And I think, I think he puts women first. God puts women first in his command because he wants women, mothers, treated different than what the pagans were doing. He's honoring biblical motherhood. And so he challenges them first. <coughs> Our New Testament in places like Titus 2 remind us of these things. <clears throat> Please forgive me. Um, older women are to teach younger women, listen to this, to love their children. <coughs> Maybe for some in here you go, does that have to be taught? Well, yeah. <laughs> it's hard to love children the way God tells you to love them at times. And you need someone there. The goal is to, to resemble God, to be holy like him in all of these areas. And so women are challenged to love their children and to love their husbands and yet ephesians 4 6 tells that fathers are to be the oversight of the spiritual upbringing of their children 
So the godly Israelite family was a nation set apart from these pagan nations around them. And they were to obey this instruction so that their, their, their society and their families and their neighborhoods did not fall into decay. There's neighborhoods that you just don't want to drive through at night. They're absent of men who led families. There's absence of justice that takes place in some places around our world. And and now it's dangerous to be in some of those places. See, God wanted nothing to do that nothing to do with his, his children to have a society like that. Don't you love when you come to church that your children can run and play? I, I mean our goal is to design a place where there's eyes on, we're watching and caring, we have the right people teaching. We're safe. You know, parents, when you oh, families that you can say, I, I know my children can play in safety. And most likely it's people who have adhered to something, something of the Bible of how to parent and care for little ones. And there's harmony there and joy there. Oh, there's always a rock thrown here or there if you raise boys. But yet there's a, there's a desire there. They're, they're, they're not there destroying what God has put together. And so Christ and her families are such a vital part of the Christian church and a vital part of the world. You know, someday God's going to take the Christians out of the world. <laughs> Boy, is that going to be a fun place to hang around. All the things that God has us do for his glory will now be absent. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? Next, notice the latter part of verse 3. We see the fourth commandment repeated here. And God is clearly teaching reverence for parents and connect it to reverence to Yahweh here. He, He wants Yahweh exalted here. Keep the Sabbath. I am the Lord your God. Now, children who submit to parental authority will certainly be different than the pagan world, right? And children who submit to parental authority is a right step to to submitting to divine authority, right? We always say this, we can't save our children, but we can sure point their little spiritual faces in the right direction. And their little rear ends every once in a while. Right? That's... It's good, godly parenting, directing them towards that. So we are not like a pagan world. And this issue of the Sabbath that comes up in here is Sabbath with his day of rest, right? It was a day to remember that God provided everything the nation needed, particularly reconciliation. And the Sabbath was a day to remember that God provided for them. And they could trust in him that he would give them their food, right? They're still getting manna from heaven at this point, right? And they're to collect that all on the night before, and the day before on Friday, before the Sabbath came. And they, they had to trust the Lord that it wouldn't spoil. It spoiled on all the other days. It was a way to help them trust God that he would provide for them, wasn't it? And the nation was to rest. They were to rest back and lay back in a sense in the truth that God was who he was. And they had a relationship with him. 
For the church, the scriptures make it clear that the new gov- in the new covenant, where there is no obligation to keep a Sabbath day. And that's because the Sabbath was completed in Jesus Christ. Instead, we learn that we understand that the Sabbath is, is, is now every day. And I think the problem is, is because a good thing like the Sabbath became a way that people, Israel, uh, uh, certain people will try to justify or promote their own self-righteousness. But no, Christians, we lay back in the rest that Christ gave us, and we lay back in that rest every day. This is a problem in the early church. It is today, too. There's some that want to cling on and hold to these things, cause division. Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17, Therefore no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink. This is New Testament church right here. In respect to festivals or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Which things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Jesus Christ. If you speak with a Sabbatarian and use that word mere shadow, they can get very upset with you. It's because somehow... The shadow has been worshipped and not the, the one casting it. <laughs> right? Galatians chapter 4, 9 through 11. We find this in these churches that were struggling with legalism, right? But now that you have come to know God, or rather been known by God, how is it you've turned back again to weak and worthless elements to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. You're stumbling over the easiest things. This is what God has given. He's given you a Christ that you completely rest in. And so Christians enter the rest. And we experience that every day of the week, not just one. But for the nation of Israel, this was important for them. They were to to rest from these things. There was a practical aspect to this. They needed rest. You know, life was difficult living in a tent out in the desert. Constantly gathering. I mean, we talked about where they got their water from. Is that rock still producing it? You got livestock to water and feed. There's so much happening here. God wanted them to rest. And yet, unfortunately, the nation turned the Sabbath into a way to produce their own self-righteousness and try to bring themselves to God. Well, some, some will tell you that uh, the fourth commandment uh, is not in the New Testament, but I totally disagree. Listen to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9 through 10. So there remains a Sabbath rest. Well, there it is. There's the commandment. For the people of God, that would eliminate people who aren't of God. They've tried to come to God some other way. For the one who has entered his rest has himself rested from his works. Isn't that a beautiful statement? As God did from his. We rest from our works. When you got saved, you said, God, I'm done trying to get to you through all these things. My faith is in your son alone. That's where our rest is. Now, daily, as we live in the New Testament, a person um, who works seven days a week, you can be spiritually and mentally and physically drained. I know this. I fall under this pressure at times. We still live in fallen bodies, right? We still have a fallen condition that we have to wrestle with and creation and so forth. And you need rest and recovery. I need it. And what comes with that is that just, well, you know, I'll go sit and buy the TV. 
Well, part of our rest needs to be around prayer and worship. Sunday morning is a beautiful morning for most, I hope. It's different, isn't it? Your thinking's a little different. Pace is a little different. You're gathering with the saints. You're coming to worship. If you have children, you're working hard to try to get their little minds and hearts directed in the right direction. But it's a different day, isn't it? It's a day that we enjoy time with our fellow brothers and sisters. It's a day we enjoy the blessings of God. And it is a recovery day in a lot of ways spiritually. Now, I need a couple of recovery days after it. But, but it is a recovery day in a lot of ways. And, and when, you're, when you spend time with the Lord, and even though you're tired and worn out, that you, it's amazing how that repairs your lack of strength. I'm going to keep moving. Verse 4. I'm not getting very far. Uh, do not turn to idols or make yourself molten gods. I am the Lord your God. Well, here verse 4 reminds us of the second commandment, right? Bringing that back out. It's a strong warning not to turn to idols. It's interesting the word idol means worthlessness. You can get the word nothing from it in the Hebrew word. The root of it describes the inadequacy, inadequacy of a piece of wood or stone to do anything. To help your soul in any way. It's amazing that mankind could get to the point, and they still do it around the world. I've been in many countries where idols are still prevalent. Where they worship something carved as though it can give them anything. It's amazing, isn't it? So God doesn't want this. He doesn't want his Israelites. He doesn't want his people to even consider that an idol has any value at all. He wants them, just by the title of it, that he wants them to see these as worthless value. And yet later Israel plays the harlot to him. A God who separated seas and fed them and gave them a land. They later abandoned the living God for block and rock. The New, new, the new Covenant, under the New Covenant, um, as New Testament believers... Worthless idols um, still have some power, if we're not careful. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead too. And here comes a list of uh, idolatry, because this is what Paul's going to say. Immorality, impurities, passions, evil desires, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. See, I, they die, uh, the, the worthless idols are still there. They're just in the recesses of our hearts. And maybe they're even more dangerous as they lay there. And there's only one way to escape idolatry. It's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way we beat that. And, and so it's a submission. It's a bow down to God. It is, is a constant reminder to put him as Lord of your life. Otherwise, those idols keep pulling on you. Look at verses 5 through 8. Now, when you... Offer a sacrifice of peace offering to the Lord. You shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it the next day. But what remains until the third day, you shall burn it with fire. So if it is eaten at all on the third day, it is an offense. It's an offense. And will not be accepted. And everyone who eats it will bear his iniquity. For he has profaned the holy things of the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from his people. Well, the peace offering was to be given in the tabernacle. And it was to be given to the Levitical priesthood. 
And it was, it's an amazing offering. And we've studied, we studied this earlier in Leviticus. It was an enjoyment of peace with God. It was an offering to say, I have fellowship with Yahweh. And so this peace offering was done out of someone's free will to do it. They would just want to give to God this. It wasn't mandated. It wasn't forced upon them. It wasn't forced fellowship of his people. The goal was Yahweh wanted fellowship and he wanted them to desire that fellowship. But the problem was, God didn't want stale fellowship. And you have this peace offering, and you've desired this fellowship with God, and yet you just laid around. You never, you never ate of it, enjoyed the fellowship with God. You said you wanted peace with Him, you said you wanted fellowship, but you were lazy. And this is what he's picking up. He didn't want his people to have this stale fellowship with him. And so the meat of the peace offering was to be eaten before two days, not after two days, not on the third day. And so he did not want lazy worship. And he called that lazy worship, notice in the text, as profaning the holy things of God. There's a good analogy there, too. We can be really lazy in our worship, can't we? We can let Hayward do everything. Let the pastor do all the studying. Never open my Bible throughout the week. Depend on somebody else and their growth and never really grow myself. Don't let your worship become stale. God said it profanes things. He wants fresh worship. Got a reminder of it. Every day is a new day with the Lord, isn't it? New beginnings with the Lord. Time for fresh refreshment with him. Talk with him. Be reconciled with him. If you have struggles, be right with him. It's so important to God, as far as the nation of Israel is concerned here, that if they handle this improperly, you see it in the verses here, they're to be cut off. If you want to worship me lazy and don't care about how you come to me, I will not let you be reconciled. That's what he says. Third, a practical holiness that affects a fallen society. Now he gets into some very practical things as well um, as he goes through there. Look at verses 9 and 10. Now when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the very corners of your field. You shall not gather and glean the gleamings of your harvest. Nor Nor shall you gleam your vineyards. Nor shall you gather the fallen fruit in your vineyards. You shall leave them for the needy and for the stranger. I am the Lord your God. Jewish historians said that basically, the way they figured it out, the Jews figured this out, that about a sixteenth of your harvest you were to leave for those less fortunate. And we see this probably best played out in the book of Ruth. Naomi and Ruth return um, from Moab. Their husbands are dead. (laughs) Naomi's just done. Call me Mara. I hate life. We're all going to die. Ruth goes out, well, you have a law in your land where I could go gleam, and so I'm, I'm going to go gleam. And she, by the providence of God and the instruction of her mother-in-law, she ends up in Boaz's field. Boaz protects her from anybody sexually attacking her and makes sure she's fed and has all the grain she needs. 
And it's the beginning of a beautiful romance that starts, and again, the seed of Jesus Christ is in that. But we see this played out. God says this is, be holy for I'm holy. Care for those. One of the aspects of a holy God is he is kind to those who are less fortunate, and that would be all of us. I mean, that's a mark of God. He's kind. And so here he wants this nation, a holy nation, that he's given his laws to, to check their selfishness, to check their greed, to encourage brotherly kindness and generosity. And God's leading his people away from this covetousness that, that grips easily, grips the heart of every person. He does this, and he does this today, too. He often blesses some with a little more and gives us the opportunity to share that with the less fortunate. We have a benevolent fund at this church. We have actually several. And those funds are handled by our deacons, and we would be impressed how much money actually turns through those. We try to care and help people in, in difficult times. Your giving goes to that. But God, he never wants them to forget what they've been through, right? He doesn't want them to forget that they too were foreigners in a land in Egypt. He doesn't want them to forget where he's brought them. He wants them to treat people with kindness even though they themselves were not treated with kindness. And again, this is a mark of practical holiness. This is different than the pagan nations around you. The pagan nations do not feed their enemies, they sought to kill them and take everything they had. Now, we need to have discernment of how we help those who have struggled. You don't want to help out a drug habit. There's two things we can do. We can feed and give the gospel. It's just been a rule of ours. Just we feed and give the gospel. If you're, are you hungry? I've asked so many people, are you hungry? Let's go, let's go down here. Let's get something to eat. I want to talk to you anyway. That's what we do. And this is the mark of holy people. They care that if somebody's hungry, we'll feed them. See, holiness is often translated into compassion. God is compassionate for our souls. He's compassionate on us. He knows we are but dust. He's compassionate. Holiness translates often in compassion and kindness. And God wanted his nation to be holy, and that means they were going to be compassionate. Just think if Boaz would have rejected these commands. Yeah, I know the Bible says we're supposed to leave those corners. We're not. It's a tight year. Get every grain. Kick those homeless people out of there. <laughs> Certainly God's sovereign. Where the seed of Christ is in that woman. Obedience brings about the purposes of God, doesn't it? Look at verses 11 and 13. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. You shall not falsely swear, not, you, excuse me, you shall not fall, swear falsely by my name, so as to profane my name of your God, I am the Lord. And you shall not oppress your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until the morning. Well, first of all, now we come to the eighth command that he uses here. Stealing, right? And there's a foundational command for human society here that God develops in his nation of Israel. And, and really, it has a lot to do with personal property. He gives people the right 
to own personal property. And then he says, don't take from that. Then hard, and this is a sidetrack, and I won't go very long on this, but you study some of the things that are coming down the pipe and things that have happened to other nations, personal property is always something governments love to take. God says, no, I'm giving you the personal property. Don't take what's not yours. Be a steward of it. And so God clearly is entrusting certain possessions to individuals. And other peoples and governments are not permitted to take that. It's, it's illegal to do that. That's not the mark of a holy people. And so any stealing of any kind is certainly opposite of a holy life. New Testament says it this way. This is the power of the gospel, right? Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must not steal no longer. Rather, he must labor and perform with his own hands what is good so that he... He himself will have something now to share with something else. Isn't that beautiful? The gospel brings people full circle. The next phrase he says, never deal falsely or lie to one another. I, I think what he's doing here, when you think of a national group of people here, a corporate group of people, is he's, he's talking about fraud. And he's talking about forms of deception. And he knows how dangerous that would be. A nation that is sus suspects fraud, like we have going on. I mean, everybody's suspecting everything right now, right? There's no trust. These guys don't trust this part of the government, this part doesn't trust that. And, and so everything starts to break down, right? And we're down here paying our taxes, and we're going, what's going on up there? See, God knew that, that that would not be good for the nation if there was fraud and there was deception, whether that was neighbor to neighbor or within the governmental structure of the nation. Notice verse 12. You shall not swear falsely by my name, so as to profane the name of your God, I am the Lord your God. Again, now he brings out the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. And most likely, this is probably swearing to some kind of oath in order to deceive someone. Oh, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I swear, I'll, I'll get that done. New Testament says, holy people say, yes, their yes is yes and their no is no. People who love God, they're not deceptive in that. Holiness causes men and women to be men and women of their word. Notice in verse 13 that holiness causes people under God's command not to oppress and rob one another. Cheating is a form of robbery or stealing and God commands against it here. So you're just going to lose trust within the nation. You're just going to be like the rest. The stronger take and the weaker are oppressed. He doesn't want them to be that way. Furthermore, God commands holy people to pay just wages to those they hire. Isn't that interesting? Don't stiff somebody. It's a sin. One of the pastors and I were talking about this the other day. Because every once in a while we'll talk to waitresses or waiters and they'll say, well... I've been stiffed by many Christians for my tip. <laughs> now, I know there's an argument over tipping and how much, and it seems to always be going up. <laughs> but be kind to those who serve you. I think that's a mark of holiness. Be kind to those who serve you. And if somebody works for you, give them a just wage. See, this is, this is a nation that's different than the nations around them. See, God is... 
He wants good economy, right? He desires a robust economic society where people earn their wages and their wages are not withheld and are given them. He wants people to work. This is all about working here, right? You work, you get something paid. This is, this is God's design under the sun that we live in right now. Let me sneak another verse in here. Verse 14. You shall not curse a deaf man or place a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall revere your God. I am the Lord. And I'm going to get to the I am the Lord at the end. I know it's there, so... Well, here we have a very clear command that holy people do not mistreat people with disabilities. I mean, when you read this verse, how wicked could it be that someone would curse a deaf person? Or or make it difficult for a blind person to move? And I think what God is incorporating here for his nation is these ADA laws that we have now. And again, those things, sometimes laws can be excessive. But he was... He was teaching a nation that if you're a holy nation and you're following me, unlike the pagans, you're kind to those who have affirmities, disabilities given to them. We're so grateful for our ministry here that cares for those who have disabilities. Some of the kindest people in our church work in that ministry. And the elders, and I'm speaking for them, we're so thankful for that be kind holy people seek to help those who have disabilities to help those who are struggling they want to make their life somewhat easier if they can and those who have disabilities if they're christians they should be grateful that people do that in the pagan world if you were disabled you were a dead man one you would probably get sacrificed at birth if you even made it, and then two, you, you were just left for, left in hope that somebody would care for you. We see some of this where people get dropped off at doors and they, they there and beg all day long, and then maybe somebody comes back and gets them. To Israel, lived in a very cruel environment. The world, world was cruel in their day, and cruelty becomes the norm sometimes. talk with this with Aaron, you know, as he teaches the young people down there, and you're, along with your parenting, sometimes teenagers are just cruel, aren't they? That's not the norm. That's not what God requires. We're not to be cruel people. We're to be kind people. God has no room in his plan for people who are treated with cruelty. Christ, what an amazing example, wasn't he? I mean, we have examples of blind Deaf, um, lame. I mean, it's over and over throughout his ministry, he ministers to the disabled. And he leaves us such a great example. And I think it's the mark of a Christian that we're kind and tenderhearted to one another because God forgave us. Well, we'll stop right there for the sake of time. Um, I had a feeling I was going to go a little slower with this passage. You can see he's really now settled down into giving individual laws to help this nation be very, very different than the world. And yet, in every one of these, we found application to the New Testament life, haven't we? 
Every one of these we see verses in the New Testament teach us to live this holy life is because God does not change. It doesn't change. And so I enjoy studying these. They challenge me and help me in a lot of areas. <laughs> Apparently we are done. <laughs> Let me pray. Father, thank you for the time to look at this particular text, Lord. Um, Lord, we would not have even a chance to be holy without you. We would be left in our sin. There would be no such thing as blameless. We would die, and then we would be go before the judgment seat of Christ. But God, in your providence, you made a way. Many of us have experienced that, Lord. We've, by your grace and your gift of faith, grant us the ability to believe in a Jesus Christ who makes us holy and blameless. And from that holy life now comes a pursuit of holiness because our God is holy. Now we are his sons and daughters. Now we are his inheritors. And so we are now of a different family. We've been adopted into a divine family. And so now there's a pursuit of holiness. Lord, we don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to add to the beautiful words of God's word. Help us, to, help us to live according to your word individually. And then collectively, Lord, we'll be a church that loves you and is kind and seeks to do things that are right and just, Lord. It won't be hard to make decisions of what's right and wrong because we're pursuing you. So help us be that church, Lord. It starts in each one of our hearts, Lord. We're wrong where we've sinned. May we repent and confess. And Lord, may we continue to get up and meet your mercies new every morning and walk with you. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. Thank you for your holiness. May it motivate us to walk with you in Jesus' name. Amen.